Welcome to North Boston Korean United Methodist Church. Here, we are a family that seeks to love others the way Jesus loves us and raise people up in His love. We are grateful to have you listening. Regardless of who you are, you are always welcome here. For more information, check out our website at nbkumc.com. Wonderful to be able to come together and worship God together, but uh, I know that for some of us, we might get be getting sick and tired of COVID, and um, I pray that I just I don't want to I don't want to preach with blindness to what's going on in our world today. Um, I just want to shed light to the fact that um, not too long ago, just a couple. Just a couple days ago, a video was released on the internet um, about a young man that's actually my age, um, was jogging in Georgia um, just because he liked exercising, um, but was perceived to be a threat to the community and was shot down by civilians um, on his daily jog just because he was black and that happened in February, but it got released um, and has been the topic of most of our conversations this past week. Um, I just want to shed light to the fact that um, we are in sheltered, McSheltered, Massachusetts, um, where racist jokes are child's play and learning to live amongst Trump supporters is something that we need we just need to get used to on our day to day um, and shed a blind eye towards what that means for you know racial diversity and unity. Um, nothing against any person um, in the Republic or Democratic Party at all, but I just want to shed light to the fact that um, a brother who loved the Lord, who's of a family that loved God, um, passed away uh, two weeks ago. Uh, two months ago and it just came to light but uh, that we can keep that family the Arbery family in our prayers uh, that we can if you guys see anything that the family itself them themselves have released regarding financial support please link it to me and we will we will do a whole thing out of it um, I believe that and I, I, I'm a firm believer that the Asian community, we're really quick to post things on Facebook rather than bring our support and solidarity for our brothers and sisters in action. So I pray that our community would be uncomfortable enough to realize that words are not enough and that we can really stand alongside them. Even in this time of COVID, even while our families might be struggling a little bit financially, I believe that there is real, I, I believe that God honors when we share what we have uh, with those that are in need. Um, I also want to shed light to the fact that uh, a pastor in Seattle um, in the evangelical circle just passed away this morning or yesterday um, due to a self-inflicted gunshot wound. And um, it's the second pastor death in our country this year. Um, this wasn't suicide, but uh, previously um, there were there was a, a man that passed away, a, a young adult pastor. Uh, named Jared Wilson, who passed away from suicide um, just a few months ago. I don't know if it's been almost a year, but it's been less than a year. Um, just want to shed, uh, shed light to the fact that um, there might be people in your life that are smiling, that believe in God, that uh, might be going through real darkness. Um, so just keep I pray that this would be a time where we can keep, you know, people wrestling with mental social health in our prayers as well. Um, keep the Patrick family in our prayers um, as they, and, and um, Seacoast Church as they mourn the loss of pastoral staff and father and friend. Um, yeah. Also today's Mother's Day, so um, I pray that you are able to take advantage of the time that we have in COVID to just show your mama some love because let's face it, all we did was get popped out of the womb. They are the ones uh, that bled and died and cried for us to be in the world. So let's show them some love. I think that's all I wanna mention. Um, we're continuing through our sermon series on Acts. Um, last week we talked about some of the most important things that the church needs to talk about, which is the fellowship of the believers and what what is comprised, 
what is the Church of God comprised of? Um, if you guys haven't or weren't able to join us, we missed you, but I really pray that you are able to at least skim through that material on our online website, um, just because I feel like it is very important for our church. Um, but we're continuing through Acts. We're only on chapter three. If you guys can open your Bibles with me, uh, you can pull it up on your devices, um, whatever means that you have available to you right now. If you guys can just pull up Acts chapter three. I'm reading from the ESV. If you have the NIV, that's fine. Um, I actually recommend you read it maybe from NIV or NRSV. But if you have ESV, then you can just follow along with me. Uh, we are reading God's holy and perfect word, even though we're not standing. I pray that you guys can, you know, take that stance of, um, that posture of receiving God's holy and perfect word with generous and loving hearts and reverent hearts. This is the word of the Lord. Now, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man, lame from birth, was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the Beautiful Gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms, that's money. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people who saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the, as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Now, while he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety, we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses and his name by faith in his name has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your father, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you join me in praying? Abba, we thank you for this morning that you've given us your word. 
Abba, this is a word that a lot of us have not seen happen in our lives. So Father, open the eyes of our hearts, open our ears, that we may see the reality of what you've done this day, so many years ago. You are still the same yesterday, today, and forever. Abba, you are the God of Abraham and you are the God of our people today. You are still God. You will forever be God. So Abba, would you open the eyes of our hearts and of our souls and of our minds that we can see who you are more clearly. Abba, we pray for your presence to fill every room that your people are in. That we would truly be able to feel you and experience you. It is hard being away from one another. But Abba, you are with us. You continue to unfold your plan. So even when everything is going crazy, help us to stay faithful to you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Okay. I'm just going to say the main idea first, as I always do. The main idea is that Luke writes this to show that the authority of Jesus continues in his people and that healing is brought with the purpose of bringing people to Jesus. I'm going to say that one more time. The authority of Jesus continues in his people and healing is brought with the purpose of bringing people to Jesus. Now we're going to unpack this a little bit, but I want to ask you the question, a challenge in this day and age as, as states are about to open and COVID is going to go into its second wave because none of us know how to keep still and uh, people are going to die some more um, because we don't know how to, well, I'm not going to get into that. But in light of this pandemic, um, my question to you is, why do you pray for healing? And what is your expectation of God out of healing? Why do you pray for healing? And what is your expectation of God in that prayer? All right, so the, the context of this passage. Now we've seen Acts chapter one, when Jesus ascends and is exalted, we see that God's people gather to pray before the Holy Spirit comes. We see that they are, the Holy Spirit hits them. All of a sudden they start breaking out in different languages. Everybody's freaking out and Peter preaches and about 3000 come to Jesus that day. And what happens? Koinonia. We talked about it last week. What is fellowship? What is unity in the body of Christ? What is breaking bread? What is praying and worshiping together? What, is, what does it mean to be, to be able to listen to God's word? And now, now that the body of Christ is a little bit more established, this chapter three actually enters into the second section of Acts. Now there are many sections of it, there are 20 chapters, but this is the second section of Acts, which is the life, the witness, the trials, and the growth of the early church. So now that the church has started to be a full church in Acts, 40, Acts 2, 42 to 47, the second section of Acts starts the witness of the church and the growth of the early church and the trials that they go through upon being established. Now, the first verse starts off with the fact that Peter and John have been going to the temple every day at 3 p.m. It's their prayer routine. Now, this is a very Jewish practice. Um, did they also offer offerings? I don't know. I mean, it was before, we do know that it was before Jesus made clear that Peter could eat pigs, things that were un considered unclean. So um, I think they were still praying at the temple at 3 p.m., but I think, I don't know if they were practicing Jewish acts it's clear though that they considered prayer corporate prayer and the temple with all of god's people to be very important um now this was afternoon prayer hour there are two prayer hours there's afternoon and evening if you look in the book of daniel daniel prays every night 
Um, that was more common for Jewish people. Like the only prayer discipline they had was praying at night. Um, but we see Peter and John, they go to the temple to pray in the afternoon at 3 p.m. Now, at this time, Jews would burn sacrifices. Um, and sacrifices were going on. Now, one day as they were doing their prayer practice, there's a beggar that is brought in to the temple at the gate called Beautiful. One interesting thing about this beggar is that he's brought in. So this beggar, ain't he ain't living out there. He's not homeless. He's brought in every day to beg for alms. Who is he carried in by? Most likely it's going to be his family. And it's most likely that he's brought in every day to beg at the gate of the temple during afternoon and dinner prayer hour to gather money to contribute to his life. It's clear that he's been doing this because he's been um, an invalid all his life. Like he hasn't been able to use his legs all his life. So it's been at least 33 years. Now we see that there's a kind of, there's a, like a special type of coldness about that. Um, he's been begging for 33 years because that's all he can do to contribute to the family. Um, now, what is the context of a beggar's life? If a beggar that is paralyzed or is a paraplegic, isn't able to do anything to help the family and is sitting in front of the temple every day. What kind of, what kind of, there's a Korean word for this, she's on, what kind of outlook do people take on beggars and what kind of life or cultural context um, does a beggar go through? Beggars were not seen to be full people. <laughs> Like we see the three-fifths compromise in the making of our constitution where people believe that, where white people believe that black people were only three-fifths of a person. It's kind of like that, where if you were an invalid, if you couldn't walk or move, you were not seen to be a full man because you could not function with your body. Um, they were characterized mistakenly, I believe, with like being viewed to be effeminate or timid. Um, in Jewish culture, when somebody has been made paralyzed, when somebody isn't able to walk, the common Jewish belief was the reason why they were paralyzed was because they were being punished for a prior sin. Um, one thing that we do know for certain there are a lot of these speculations. These are not speculations, but they're like subcultural things like Romans and Greek people viewed them to be wimps. Um, Jewish people viewed them to be getting punished. But overall, we see that they were always an object of ridicule and cheap humor because they were seen as half a man. So what that means is that sometimes when there were like large parties, they were party tricks. It means that people did not give them the time of day. It means that they were really looked down on, despised and forgotten, not known, not really cared for. Now the beggar was asking for alms, carried in by his family for 33 years. He was asking for alms to everyone who had entered in. And Peter and John, come across this man. Peter and John, when the beggar is asking everybody for alms, like if you can imagine, so it's like a lot of people, because this is Jerusalem, a lot of people are entering into this temple. Like it's not just Peter and John, doo -doo -doo, it's like a crowd of people entering into a gate. If you understand a temple, there's there are four gates on the north, south, east, and west for all the people that are coming in because all the people need to do burnt offerings. So um, there are a lot of people that are entering it, and this beggar is sitting on the side asking for money from everybody. And in the midst of that, Peter and John says, look at me. He commands, they command his, or Peter, because John is silent in this story. He commands the attention of the beggar. 
When Peter says, look at us, the beggar, after asking everybody for money, turns his attention to Peter and John specifically, and the beggar expects him to give money. This is where we see the most important sentence, one of the most important sentences of this chapter. I have neither silver or gold, but what I have I give to you. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, the Messiah, walk. The first thing I want to draw your attention to in this narrative, because Luke writes this as though it's just a story, like a historical narrative, kind of like an article. Like he's just reporting things that had happened. And I want to draw your attention to the fact in the, that in the midst of the story, what the beggar is asking for and what Peter is proposing to give are two different things. That's the first thing to mention is that the beggar was asking for money, but Peter brings him healing. I don't want to hone in on this, but I want us to be mindful of the fact that often what we want is not often what we need. And sometimes we want, I mean, in the case of this beggar, he wanted money, not just because he wanted money, but because something had been instilled in him that money was what he needed to live. Something had been instilled in the beggar that money was what he needed for his family to be able to support him. And what Peter, servant of God, brings to the beggar is not what the beggar wanted. It ain't money. This is important for us to take note of that often what we want right now in your season, in this time of COVID, what you want in light of our society and what you're asking God for might not be based on scripture, what you need. God, it's not that God doesn't want to give us what we're asking for, but it might be that God is set up to give us something more impossible, something that gets at the heart of what we actually need. Because what we need is not a band-aid, what we need is a cure, right? And I think this beggar was looking for a band-aid. And Peter and John did not have the band-aid that this beggar wanted. But instead, he offers a more permanent solution. Now, as the beggar, as after Peter tells him that, that crazy, crazy sentence, in the name of Jesus, the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, the Messiah, walk. Upon saying this, Peter helps him up by his right hand. And if you look at the original language, what's going on is that Peter is grabbing him and helping him up at the same time. And as Peter is grabbing and helping him up immediately, as Peter is lifting him up, his ankles and his feet, the sinews and the tendons that were unable to carry his weight suddenly become strong and firm to be able to carry the man. If you understand, this beggar has never walked. This beggar has never been able to use his legs. That means that those muscles have never, ever, ever been developed because those muscles have not been used. But Peter, when he grabs the man and he lifts him up, as the man is being lifted up, his feet and ankles become strong. Now, I don't know if you guys have, I don't know why I, I, I don't know why I have, but I don't know if you guys have watched like a baby horse being born on YouTube. Um, do you guys know how a baby horse is born? Now it's like, there's all kinds of levels of growth. Like I will say like the placenta is still on the, it's really, it's really something else. But um, when a baby horse is born, like when a baby, okay, for example, when a baby is born, Imagine the baby, like when a baby is born, this is very actually fitting for Mother's Day. When a baby is born, what does the baby do? 
Does the baby stand up and say, I'm here? <laughs> don't, okay, don't imagine that. Um, what does a baby do? It cries. It cries because it meets air for the first time instead of being being in this like warm little little sack. When a horse is born, what does a horse do? Does the baby does the baby mom sit down and carry the horse? No. When a horse is born, the horse's mama is like this. So when a horse is born, it it's supposed to. It, it, there's no other way for it to be born than to have to like stand or lay down right on its side. And when a colt is born, when you see a baby colt or, or, or baby foal, right, um, born, it tries to stand on its legs, like soon after it's born or maybe right after it's born, it tries to stand on its legs, but the legs are so thin that it goes and then it falls. And then tries again and it folds up like this and then it tries to lift its up, lift its body up but then again this is how the legs go they're they're as thin as my arms they like literally tremble and then the baby the baby foal isn't able to fully carry its weight for a little bit why because the baby foal has not been able to use the muscles for walking i mean a human baby it takes an entire year for the muscles to become strong enough to carry the weight of its body. This man was not able to walk for 40 years. So what does this man's muscles look like? I wonder if he was thinner than me. I don't know. Maybe I was thinner. I don't know. Uh, but more, more likely than not, they're dead thin. And yet, what does this man do when Peter lifts him up and helps him up? In the original language, the verbs are very vibrant. Powerful strides of walking. It's not just like, it's not like, like, the difference between regular walking and the walking that this man is doing as it's described in the narrative is the, is the difference between me walking and have you ever seen like, have you ever seen an Ajuma power walking? Have you ever seen like, does your mom do that? You know, you know what I, you know when like this is the exercise, right? They hold, sometimes they hold weights in their hands and they like swing their legs back and forth and they walk around the neighborhood. I don't know if your moms do this. My mama does this, it scares me sometimes because like she does it so like mightily. Um, but it's like a powerful, stride a powerful stride of walking there's jumping involved and the jumping is very exuberant he jumps up and down and he praises God in the temple he praises God now there's no mention of whether or not this praising God is him accepting Jesus Christ but because he follows Peter and John, praising God and praising the name in which he has been healed, it suggests that he has joined the people of God in faith. And the first section ends with the fact that everyone who had seen him was amazed because they recognized him as the man that had been begging for years unable to move for over 30 years, but was jumping up, in the, jumping up and down in the temple. During rush hour of all places, of all times of the day. Now you might be thinking, yo, that's low-key, high-key crazy, right? Is the name of Jesus like magical? I don't know, the first thing that comes to my mind is like, how is one person's name able to do that? It almost like feels like, like a, like a little, what is this called? A spell, you know, like Vingardium Leviosa, like that kind of spell, right? Like something that you say that brings power and does and creates something. So is the name of Jesus kind of like that? Is like, is it like an, is it like an enchantment that we say in order to be healed? No, it's not an enchantment. Actually in the book of Acts, there is a distinction made between healing in the name of Jesus and magic because some magicians in Acts 19, I mean, if you guys want to read it ahead, you can. 
shameless plug if you want to read that, you can. But in Acts 19, a couple of magicians actually try it, like in the name of Jesus, that Paul proclaims, and a demon mauls them. <laughs> so it's very clear here that it's not magic. It's not hocus pocus. It's not some Harry Potter. It's real life. It's faith and trust in God. Now, upon this man being healed, what happens? If you guys look with me, everyone starts seeking an explanation. There's this over-glorification, like everybody rushes to the spot where this man is creating the biggest commotion of his life. And everybody is looking at him and looking at Peter and John and looking at him again and looking at Peter and John like, oh my gosh, those two men. It's those two men. It's those two men. Who did that? Why is he walking? It's Peter and John. Right? And a lot of people gather around, almost like it's a spectacle, to see what the wondrous men are doing. And when Peter sees the crowd gather around him, he looks around. He goes, why do you look at us like it was our own power that made him walk? This launches Peter into the second announcement slash sermon slash call to a crowd about the death and resurrection and power of Jesus Christ. He corrects their, their view of the origin of this healing miracle, that it wasn't in a man, it wasn't in a minister, it wasn't in a minstrel, it was in faith in Jesus that healed the man in their presence. And what's the next thing that Peter does? Peter doesn't say that. He doesn't just say it. Now, he, he goes on to explain, like, this Jesus that you killed has resurrected from the grave. He's exalted. He's the God. He's the fulfillment of promise. There's covenant faithfulness involved here. And he calls on everybody to repent, to turn to God. Peter doesn't just explain Jesus as Jesus, son of God. He doesn't just explain the 33 years of Jesus' life. Peter references Exodus and Genesis. He says the God of Abraham, Jacob of our fathers. He doesn't just call to mind Jesus, but he calls to mind the God of all history. This is really significant because the temple is built on the law of Moses. And Moses was the one who announced the coming of Jesus as the messianic prophet. So Peter establishes Jesus, not just as this present tense phenomenon, not just as a New Testament God, but as Old Testament God. And he brings that link in order to meet the Jews where they're at. Why does Peter mention the Old Testament? Why? Why does, and not just Peter, but why does the Holy Spirit through Peter announce Jesus as Old Testament God as well? to meet his people where they're at. Because they were stuck in the past and they were unable to see how the Messiah is moving in the present tense. They were still worshiping with the law of Moses without being able to see how Jesus had fulfilled and overturned that old covenant with the new covenant. And Peter calls Jesus the author of life. The author of life, that is a Genesis reference, but that's not just the Genesis reference. It's a Genesis reference that is completed in the resurrection. And why does Peter start talking to all these people that have gathered in the temple? Is Peter just talking to be like, no, 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 it's not me, it's all God. Why does Peter share Jesus? He exhorts everybody in the room to repent, to come to faith, and to experience refreshing in the presence of God. He's talking about the Holy Spirit there. Why does Peter mention repenting, coming to faith, and refreshing in the Holy Spirit? He mentions that because it's participation in God's blessing. To repent, to turn to God, to come to faith and be refreshed. So refreshing. A lot of us, we feel a little dilapidated. We feel a little dull. A lot of us, we feel this apathy, this lethargy seeping in, creeping in. This comfort and complacency that is setting in our bones. But the opposite of that is what happens when you repent and come to faith. 
which is not just a one-time thing, but turning to Jesus is a daily thing. Receiving God's blessing and mercy is a daily thing. And what happens out of turning to God is refreshing. What the Holy Spirit does is refreshing. So in sum, this man is sitting, Peter and John, they walking up because that's what they do. Peter goes, look at us. He goes, I don't have silver and gold, but what I have, I give to you in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, the Messiah, walk. He picks him up and as he picks him up, fuses together, something clicks, becomes strong and firm. And he starts jumping up, praising God. Everyone gets freaked out. It's like, what are these wondrous men doing? Looks low-key like magicians or superheroes. Everybody's like gathering. And, and, then, and then Peter says, no, this is not us. This is faith in Christ. Christ, God of Abraham, of Isaac and of Jacob, God of the Old Testament and of the New Testament that you killed, the author of life that you killed, that is resurrected. If you repent and turn to him, you will be saved. What can we learn from this? Just, this is not application. I'm not talking about application yet. But what what do we see just out of like reading comprehension? What do we see from this article type passage? One of the main things that I want to bring, bring our attention to is the fact that healing was never just physical. As Jesus did not simply heal bodily ailments, but restored men so that they can fully participate in the life of God's people. So also the apostles heal a person who then accompanies them into the temple, praising God and presumably joining the community of believers. So the purpose of healing was not for this man to be able to walk, but the purpose of the healing of this man was so that he can join the community of believers. The second thing that we see here is Peter and John, for the first time since Jesus has resurrected and been ascended, he went up into the heavens. For the first time, since that point, Peter and John is able to perform a miracle that looks just like what Jesus did. Jesus has said, all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to you. Go therefore, and what? Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and Holy Spirit. And I will be with you always until the very end of the age. So it's clear here that Peter and John has been given authority in God to be able to do what Jesus did. For what? For the witness. For the witness of the gospel. So those are the two things that are very clear here in this episode of healing. It's not just about physical healing. And this authority is given to them in the witness. Now, I want to bring to light a lot of ways that you can apply this passage in your own life and also all the questions that you might have about healing. In this time of COVID, I also feel like just there, so there, so our church has also been hit with a couple of um, passings, a couple of our um, older sisters, a woman of God, um, have gone to be with the Lord in these past couple weeks in our own church, not from COVID, but just from whatever pre-existing condition they had um, in their age. And right now we are at a time of life where death and grief and sickness in particular is just all around us. Um, I was so broken yesterday because I don't know if you guys know this guy, but his name is Ravi Zacharias. This man easily is 
the apologist of our generation. He's like the Apostle Paul. I mean, he's not an apostle, but he's like the Paul of this generation. The man is very well known to be an apologist. Apologists, um, what they do is they, they make a case for Christ. They're kind of like advocating for Christ, almost like, like what a lawyer does, but they like answer all the tough questions um, to help people to come to Jesus. And Rabbi Zacharias had been struggling with cancer for a long time. He had been he had been um, in Houston, Texas, instead of Georgia, his home, to get cancer treatment um, at the best hospital for his particular illness. But it had been not working, and so he had gotten the um, message that there was nothing that the doctors could do for him, and so he just went back to Georgia. Uh, for to be able to spend at home whatever time the family had left together. And that had just been posted on Instagram yesterday. Um, yeah, I, I don't know what it is about this time, but I feel like we are in a time where sickness and death is all around us. And we hear a lot about these kind of cases. We might have encountered a very difficult, painful, diagnosis like that in our own personal lives. Um, there are a lot of different people. Um, I, I, there's, I like to think that everyone carries grief um, or will carry grief in their lifetime at some point. And we don't like to touch this topic of whether or not God can heal. We hear a lot in sermons to believe that God can heal and restore. But there are not a lot of situations where we are able to wrestle with and tackle what it means to be hurt by God. What seems like God leaving somebody alone um, instead of healing them, like we read time and time again in the scriptures. And so I want to address some of the things and some of the themes about healing that come out of this passage. The first thing that I want to address that we see here, especially, and this is something that's highlighted in Peter's sermon, is that the sovereign God that we believe in can bring good out of evil. Now, Peter points to the fact that Jesus, a righteous man, was killed unjustly. That is, and, and in exchange, a murderer was released to the public. That is... Taking out the fact that it's Jesus Christ, taking out the fact that it's the one phenomenon of death that we've probably heard earlier than any other form of death in our lives. That just, if you think about it, a righteous man being died, being died, being killed unjustly and a murderer being released in his stead just because the people were not happy with him. That's what we call a human tragedy. That's what we call injustice at the highest degree. Much like some of the injustice that we've seen today, that sim single situation, that single phenomenon can easily and very rightly and appropriately be seen as a moment of human tragedy when the Jews of Jerusalem kill the perfect lamb. Now that, will, that was what was going on. But God, in this moment of human tragedy, was working out his purpose, and he was bringing it for good. I want you guys to see that, that Peter, as a man who lost his teacher in front of his very own eyes, he is not a man that sees the death of Jesus the way we do. Oh, Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. This guy was best friends with Jesus and saw him get killed at the hands of the Jews mercilessly and unjustly and rejected him three times, renounced him three times. I do not know the man. There's regret, there's grief, there's pain, there's anger, there's bitterness. In Peter's experience of the death, Peter is seeing this situation for what it is, and that's human tragedy. But in the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the ascension of Jesus Christ, Peter is probably still longing for Jesus because whether or not Jesus is dead or resurrected, Jesus is not with him. He's still experiencing longing. Whether or not Jesus is just dead in hell or Jesus is up in heaven, Jesus is no longer with Peter right now. 
And so Peter is still experiencing to some extent. He's longing for Jesus. I'm sure he's grieving to some extent. But we see here in Peter's preaching, we see here Peter's unwavering faith in the fact that a sovereign God who allowed this unspeakable thing to happen was working for good. And that is seen in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is seen not just in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but it is perfected when the Holy Spirit enters Peter's heart. And he's able to share his personal experience of grief to the masses because it is now good news. So that's the first thing that we see here about healing is that our sovereign God does bring good out of some of the world's greatest evils. The second thing that we see here is that what heals God's church is not a pastor, it's not a minstrel, it's not a great worship leader, it's not an amazing servant and church. We gotta hear this because our church has been allowed by God's grace in this time to be a very big driving force for Arias, which is a regional ministry. So a lot of regional leaders attend our church. But what you gotta understand is that what heals the church of Christ is not a, a human being, but the power of the name of Jesus Christ. In the name of Jesus Christ. Why is the name of Jesus Christ powerful? Because Jesus, Son of God, died and resurrected, is also God of Genesis. He is creator God. Why can Jesus heal? Because his power is not just resurrection power, it's creation power. What he did in the resurrection is recreation. It's the same power that built the whole world in Genesis. That's, that's what happened in the end of John. We need to be able to acknowledge the depth, the longevity, and the magnitude of the power of the name of Jesus. If you're wondering right now, why am I not able to lead? Why am I not able to serve? How come when I serve, it's not the same as when I see other people serve? Number one, fame and attention doesn't mean anything. But number two, it's the power of the name of Jesus that actually can make a difference. Not your actions or your love or your service. God's people does not need your service. God's people needs God. So when you're serving, you have to understand when you're loving God's people, when you're loving people outside of the church of Christ, you got to understand what they need is not you. They need the one who saved your life. And now those two things are things that we talk about all the time. But I want to get into the nitty gritty of the struggle with pain. And this is the question, the million dollar question, Jane Doe, if this, if this paraplegic was healed, how come my family member wasn't healed? How come other people are not being healed right now? How come thousands and thousands of people are dying? If this man was able to be healed, if God is rule of the world, how come not everyone is healed? I want to discount something that we need to understand. And that's, I want, I want to discount something that we might've been taught. Um, that the right way to believe in healing and resurrection power is that if we have enough faith, everyone can be healed. Hypothetically, yes, the name of Jesus can heal everybody, but it is wrong to think that in our faith, if we call upon the name of Jesus, everybody will be. Why? I was reading a commentary um, about this, about healing, and this commentary said this. I, the commentary was written by one of my professors, Dr. Schnabel, um, and who has also encountered cancer in his life. Um, 
And he wrote this, the goal of Christian ministry is ultimately not that the poor, the sick, the depressed, and the challenged are being helped, but that they can fully participate in the community of the people of God as believers who have found true salvation in the name of Jesus Christ. Sickness, famine, plague, and destruction is not a direct effect of God's action, but of man's rebellion. It says in Romans 3.23, not one man is good, not even one. Everyone in our lives have at least once ignored God to do what we want. All of us in our lifetime, at some point, have sought out whatever the heck we want to do. Instead of seeking out our identity in God. Partially because we don't see God, but other, also partially because we are dulled to God. That is the core of sin, is that we want to be God over our own lives. We want to call the shots. We want to make decisions. That root of sin has been passed down from Adam. From that point of rebellion have come a lot of destruction, dilapidation, and death in this world. Jesus, in his ministry, he is healed. The apostles in taking on Jesus' ministry is healed. But it is possible for us to focus so much on the healing that we lose the purpose of healing. And that's why I pointed us to the fact that healing was never just physical before. Because this man was not just healed for the sake of being healed, but he was healed so that he can participate in the life of God's people and be amongst a community of believers. So then, if we take into consideration the fact that that's the goal of Christian ministry, it means that God's priority is not necessarily to heal bodies, but it's to save souls. Before God brings healing in a person's life, God's prerogative is to capture that person's heart for eternity. Before God heals a body that is already plagued with sin, a body that is already going to die. Because if we don't die now, we'll die later. But the goal of God is to capture a soul. And on the flip side, if our faith in the name of Jesus heals everybody, what would that mean, Christianity? A relationship or a Mr. Fix-It? What would be the purpose and the prerogative of everybody who sought out the presence of God? Now I say this not to be insensitive, and I say this not to bring you pain or to offend any of you. I say this in comfort and encouragement and in acknowledgement of how God actually works as somebody who has also experienced death by sickness. I cannot imagine how painful it is for those of us who might have experienced grief through sickness, for those of us who might have contact with somebody who has passed away from COVID, I can't imagine how hurt you must be. And I relate to you on a very deep, profound level because it is so painful to stand by helplessly. But if the goal of the name of Jesus was to heal a body, then what would the gospel be? And sometimes we are fed the thought that our Christian life 
We are fed the thought that our Christian life is so that we can tap into all the promises of God and tap into all the power that God has given us. And yes, this is true, but you cannot discount the person of God himself and the goal that he has. If you consider the goal, that the goal is not to make this world right now, like make God's, God's people in this world right now everlasting as the world is right now, to continue to live in this world. Imagine that, imagine if, imagine if the gospel continued to heal and heal and heal and heal and heal people who are in their old age and people just had to keep living on this world forever. In this world as it is forever. What would that make Christianity? How does that change the mission of Christ? And so it is so painful, but it is something that we need to acknowledge is that the name of Jesus is not an, a party trick and it's not a magical spell that can magically heal everyone that we want to be healed. But that God has his, has his own will and he has his own way. And even though what we want right now is a band-aid for the present, that God has a cure. It takes faith, but more than faith, trust, to trust that the cure is greater than our band-aid, even while we are longing for the ones that we might lose or have lost. And we see that hope in Peter, who has just lost Jesus, and is sharing the good news. Because Jesus, his best friend, is not with him anymore. But he's still doing it. Why? Because Peter understands that the goal, even in this moment, is not to save the, the beggar for good in his body, but it's to capture his heart. And that's why this moment of healing leads to a, an exhortation of all people to receive Jesus Christ. Because the point of this man being healed was salvation, not just of him, but of everyone that saw him. Jando, I know you're saying all of this, but this hasn't happened to me in my own life. All I've experienced is pain and I don't believe it. I won't believe it until I see it. To you, I say, I feel you, if that's you. But I wanna draw attention to John 6, 6, John chapter 6, verse 26, um, something that we encountered in Lent when Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. There was a time in John, where Jesus feeds the 5,000 from five loaves and two small, small fish. And then he disappears because everyone's like, oh my God, this is the new Moses. We gotta make him leader of the world. Jesus literally escapes, he like vanishes. And then when he approaches them again, they go, where did you go? So he says, truly, truly, I say to you, you do not seek me because you saw a miracle, but because you got your fill. And after Jesus said that, and I, there's a whole exchange that comes out of this. Like, what do we do to receive Jesus? And he goes, I am the bread of life. There's this whole exchange that came out of this. But it's said in scripture that after this moment, a lot of people left him. They could not handle the rebuke that Jesus was giving. That sometimes what we want from Jesus is not him, but what he can do for us. And sometimes why the reason why we seek God is not to seek after the presence of God, but it's to seek after the provision of God. And if we take a doubt-oriented approach that's centered upon our experience rather than the presence of God, my question to you is, how's that going for you? So you're seeking after God for this, this, and this. How's that going for you? Is your heart light or heavy? Jesus says in his word, come to me, 
all who, all you who are bird, bird, burdened and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Hebrews talks about a God of all comfort. A high priest who doesn't just sympathize with us, but in every way was weak and tempted as we are, yet without sin. If your heart is heavy, taking this doubtful approach, it's worth considering the fact that maybe that approach isn't the way to God. Maybe if you keep on keeping with the, I won't believe it until I see it, the, I've never seen this before, instead of seeking out the presence of God, if you stay in your doubt, You're not accessing all that God has given you. You're not accessing the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You're not accessing his healing power. You're too focused on yourself. Straight up. Christianity is not to serve you. We were made with a purpose by a creator. And he is doing something we are either on that boat or we're not. I want to urge you and implore you, if you are stuck in a point of doubt, that to seek God, to seek out his goodness, and I want to implore you to seek guidance. You can contact me. You can talk to me if you are stuck in this doubt. Because a lot of the times that kind of level of doubt is one of deep pain. And maybe what you need is healing. You have to remember that sometimes what we want is alms. But alms does not heal you. The answer to what you want might not be what you actually need. The last thing is that repentance is necessary. The point of everything in this contact of with, with healing and restoration in the body. The point of it all, the man being able to jump around praising God and Peter preaching was repentance of everyone who was there. Turning away from our own views about God and how he should act and turning to God and the, and the revelation, the truth of his revelation in Jesus. I'm going to repeat that one more time. It, re- repentance as the purpose of this, as the, as the condition that is necessitated as a result of this episode of healing, is turning away from our own views of God and how he should act and turning to God and the truth of his revelation in Jesus. Turning away from self-determination and self-fulfillment to acceptance and trust that he is who he says he is and that we are as he says we are. This is not just a one-time thing of justification, but it is a daily thing in being sanctified. We need to be turned from our self-seeking mind to who Jesus is in self-forgetfulness and joy. It's not easy. In the midst of pain, in the midst of grief, in the midst of sickness, in the midst of suffering, it is not easy. I'm not saying this because it is easy but it is necessary. I myself was grumbling this whole week. I was upset for not being able to be with my family. I was upset about all the loss that I've experienced. And truth, in, in all truth, I just was always constantly annoyed because I didn't want to be here. I was like just serving my own self. But the one thing that God convicted me with this morning as I was finishing up sermon prepping was that I, even I as a pastor, need to turn away from my own desire to be fulfilled, my own determination to who God is, the person of Jesus. We all need it. Church, we all need to press into the presence of God because the CDC will not heal you. The point of God is not a band-aid, but it's a cure. And oftentimes what we might need more then every single news update, then pain and bitterness and resentment right now, in the middle of our hurt, what we might need, in the middle of our grief of lost opportunities, what we might need in this moment is a savior. And he has 
answers. Might not be the answer that we want, but he has truth. He is the light. Everything is illumined from darkness to light in his presence. Let's take some time to pray. When I like first opened up the sermon and had to read this, um, I was very like WTF <laughs> because this is such a hard and tough sermon. Um, and I just want to implore you one more time not just as somebody who is your pastor but as a sister let's turn to God I know some of us might be hurting or some of us might already be hurt There's something going on beyond what we know right now, under your very nose, in your heart. God is knocking. He's saying, why do you seek happiness? Why do you seek the ones you've lost? I am doing something. When God is not saying something, but you've been, if you feel like you've been praying and God hasn't been saying anything, when God is not saying anything, he's doing something. ourselves to God and our questions to God and our hurts to God and our resentment to God and our anger and our bitterness to God and our grief to God not to seek out answers but the presence of God on this short time on earth From wherever you are listening, we hope you were blessed by this week's message. For more information, check out our website at nbkumc.com.